0: What ho folks, I'm Lillian Crawford, a freelance film critic and historian focusing on women and post-war British cinema. Welcome to the Listen to Lillian podcast, part of an ongoing blog I've recently set up on Substack to develop my research my own terms. Simply go to listen to to subscribe for a bumper grub of reviews, essays, and feature articles, with upcoming series including a deep dive into the output of Ealing Studios, Dance in the Films of Pal and Pressburger, and All Things Carry On, James Bond, and Derek Jarman. Each episode I invite my guests to select a British film to discuss, from the Silent Era to recent releases. All I ask is they pick a film they think is particularly interesting in its representation of female characters or its approach to queer subject matter. For this episode, I'm incredibly excited and grateful that film director Isabel Sandervel has agreed to join me for a chat. The film she's chosen for us to discuss is Tony Scott's 1983 vampire drama The Hunger, starring David Bowie, Catherine Deneuve, and Susan Sarandon. Before we get going, here's the original trailer to give you a flavour of the film.
1: Sarah Roberts is in jeopardy. Hey lady, how about it? Stay with her. Help her, for she has begun to feel the awful horror of The Hunger. John Blaylock, the hunger has given him everlasting life, until now, pray for him, Miriam Blaylock, she feeds one day in seven on the unsuspecting, and soon she will turn into something that you will never be able to forget, no matter how hard and how long you try, fear her.
0: What have you done to me?
1: Forever and ever. Signs terminate right here. (laughs) (laughs) The timeless beauty of Catherine Deneuve, the cruel elegance of David Bowie, the open sensuality of Susan Sarandon combined to create a modern classic of perverse fear. Haunting, mysterious, sensual, strange, perverse, riveting. The Hunger.
0: Hello. How
2: are you? Good. Yeah. How are you doing? How was Berlin? It was crazy, but fun. It was mostly my producer who uh, attended most of it uh, because he's representing the project, but I... I definitely had my own share of meetings with him uh, throughout the week, but um, I'm very, very happy with how it turned out. Good, yes. (laughs) London. Yeah, it's been
0: strange, not being up to much, just trying to start out with various projects. So I am so insanely grateful to you for agreeing to do one of these.
2: Of course. um, Thanks for inviting me. So The Hunger, it's really my first time watching The Hunger. It's been on my watch list, so... Thank you for nudging me to finally see it.
0: I also hadn't seen it before. So this is good that we're both coming at it fresh. One of the first things I wanted to ask you as well, you've sort of answered it in a way. It was like what your relationship with the film is, how you became aware of it,
2: how you came to the film. Yeah, you know, I think since the pandemic started a year ago, I had this idea of wanting to do a vampire film, you -hmm. know, But that wasn't horror or not, you know, trafficking the usual tropes and cliches um, that we expect from that kind of film. And that I want to use the framework of a vampire movie to explore themes like immortality and memory and the passage of time, and also to evoke. I guess, you know, more sumptuous and richer emotions like ecstasy, romantic ecstasy and desire and longing pretty much kind of subvert, you know, the genre.
0: Yeah, it's strange. I've mostly done this with critics and and people in the UK. What's quite nice is to be able to, to watch a film and know that you've chosen it and think about your style of filmmaking and to see how <laughs> this sort of film might appeal to you in terms of Lingua Franca and, and Shangri la as well.
2: Yeah, I, I love how it has a very, very, you know, particular and rarefied atmosphere. It's a lot of mood, you know, and mood and tone really dominates the film more than the plot, which can get, you know, wobbly. But yeah, I just admire how Tony Scott here really immerses us in that kind of world. Mm -hmm. Um, you know the aesthetic is very very 80s it reminds me of that iconic 1984 tv commercial from apple yes (laughs) yes it's it's all these you know billowy lace you know white linen stunt doves and these you know like smoke uh yeah, yeah it's you know for someone who's working in an ostensibly you know commercial slash studio project with three recognizable stars Mm. just to have the audacity to make it into like a vibe movie very you know plot driven piece like a lot of his later action films I suppose I mean to be also to be completely honest I I think I've only seen one other Tony Scott
0: yeah I'm not even sure I've seen any of the (laughs) other yeah I think it's notable for i would imagine partly because this film didn't do particularly well with critic or at the box office Rodery that hated it and various other critics hated it he then sort of had to come at hollywood from another angle so i suppose that's it's a shame then that some of those more experimental elements that are in this film are sort of shied away from in his later work
2: yeah and i think you know what's interesting is that i think after this he did Top Gun yeah, and exactly a decade after The Hunger, he did True Romance, Mm. which is one of his most beloved films. But the only other, for some reason, the only other reason Tony Scott movie I've seen was Unstoppable, that train action (laughs) film with with, um, Denzel Washington and Chris Pine about 10 years ago. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Again, talking about like what I was thinking about in terms of, your films and this film was that what really struck me about the eroticism of this film was the way that particularly the lesbian scene is shown um, which I suppose in the 80s would have been quite striking in the way that it's it's depicted in a similar way me as a trans woman now Mm. watching lingua franca and seeing the way that the sex scenes are done in your film Mm. is so i cried i was kind of overwhelmed um it's so beautiful and so honest in a way that i'd never seen in a film before. Yeah, so I I think it's interesting to look at these sort of milestones of of representations
2: of sex in cinema, particularly for LGBT people. It's um, interesting, though, because what do you think of um, the sex scene here in The Hunger being directed by a, you know, cisgender male? Do you think that it has an obvious male gaze? It kind of does. Right?
0: It yeah, I suppose so, but not as much as some other films, I think. Um, and I think that partly comes through the use of Lacme, which I think is particularly beautiful in this in that scene, because Catherine Deneuve's talking about the flower duet beforehand, and she's saying that it's like a love song between two women. <sighs> to some extent, when I'm talking about the sex in this film, I'm actually talking about the scene. Before the act of sex because the way that those two characters sort of flirt with each other and the way they interact is quite refreshing and then, and then yeah there is a sort of slightly gazy aspects to that
2: scene but you're right there is a tenderness to it and I remember that story that uh, Miriam Catherine New's character tells um, Sarah as she's playing the piano and um, Susan strand and asked her like are you coming on to me <laughs> You know, but... Are you well, making I...
0: a pass at me, Mrs. Blaylock, or
2: something? <laughs> yeah. yeah, and there's definitely a tenderness um, in the scenes, um, and that's the scene that follows between her um, the two women.
0: Yes, definitely. But there's also, like, a level of discomfort to that scene, in terms of the transmission of vampirism between them, which is sort of, particularly in the 80s, that can be read as like an AIDS metaphor, of sort of passing an illness on to someone else. And it also with Bowie's character with John beforehand as well. Am I just imagining that or is that... Because that, that's quite an uncomfortable element to this film is that she's sort of passing this thing on to people knowingly, but without them knowing.
2: Yeah. Wow. You're right, I didn't really think about that because that was really the time. This came out in 83, right? That's, that's right, yeah. It's around the time when mm-hmm. HIV AIDS became, wow. Do you think, um, now I'm curious in terms of the public and the critical reception to the film around that time, mm-hmm. were the reviews um, conscious of or did they allude to <laughs> you,
0: it Me. Yeah, I think maybe that's because well, I, I I don't think they did, and and that's because a lot of the the reviews are by sort of straight cis men, or <laughs> which as as is true of a lot of film criticism. But I think at this point during the eighties, maybe it wouldn't have been thought of as such because they, I I don't know the extent to which we knew that it was passed through the blood at that point and if it was that it could be passed by women or, or anyone having having yeah. sex or, or through any bodily fluid so I, do, I don't know maybe maybe that's just sort of looking back at it now and okay. seeing that element to it I, I don't um, know if that's a conscious decision it was just something yeah. that that I was thinking about when I was watching it
2: um it's interesting because now I'm thinking about the kind of director Tony Scott is and the kind of projects and materials that he has taken on generally um, mm-hmm. in his career. Um, and it doesn't seem like he's particularly politically enlightened. Yeah. And it was also shit, but I think, you know, people and cinephiles from our communities, um, mm-hmm. when looking back at this film yeah. within the bigger context of when it came out and what was happening in the world, um, we are the one that, that's making that reading and making. And I think that's what ultimately works of art, and especially works of cinema, does is that they take on newer, more profound resonances. You know, depending on who sees, yeah, see them and engages with them, and how deeply we engage with them—not just intellectually, but historically, and and emotionally—and that's what I wanted to do, or what I attempted to do with Lingua Franca. When you think about it, it's not a film that over explains everything it's not transgender 101
0: oh god yeah <laughs> like a lot of films are
2: exactly and i think that was kind of my the bold move that i did similar to tony scott here kind of like essentially abandoning the me- mechanisms and me- mechanics of plot to drench the film and the audience in moon. essentially mm-hmm. i the screen from from Lin- Franka from a cis perspective is quite narratively spare you know mm. early on there's a scene in the film that has Olivia dilating um yeah a lot of people think it's master you know she was like masturbating right
0: and- oh do they okay that's interesting because
2: and- <laughs> like to me that was just like oh
0: my god never seen this happen on the film before this is cool this is like you know
2: relatable content yeah but I, you know, I- <laughs> I never felt the need to explain what was going on no. because you know um, it's not my responsibility of course yeah but what's happening to me I was telling it to the audience and the people that connected with the film ultimately are the ones who met the film and me halfway okay. as a storyteller and kind of fill in the blanks um, yeah. and found you know meaning and symbolism and just gravitas and just these combinations of image and sound. I've, I've always said that cinema is so remarkable because we're able to employ essentially fake, you know, images and sounds, put them together and string them, these things into scenes that form a narrative that somehow evoke emotions that are genuine in the people watching them. And it's because it's the viewers that assign significance and meaning based on their own history and experience and background and subconscious, um, I guess, desires uh, Mm. that we project onto the screen.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think that what really is quite striking about the hunger in that way, and in terms of how it combines those, those cinematic elements, is that the opening is... A real sort of tour de force of image and sound and, and editing. That opening sequence with with sort of um, Bauhaus doing Bella Lugosi's Dead, is, which mm-hmm in itself is sort of like, this is not old Universal Monsters, Bella Lugosi, Dracula. This is a new version of vampirism. And yeah, it just sort of absolutely rips along for a while. And it's like, oh my God, it's going to need to slow down in a minute. Otherwise, it's going to be hard to sort of keep up with what's (laughs) what's going on.
2: I thought it was also quite deceptive, to be honest, because, you know, for one, it signals this is going to be an ultra-modern, not their usual, you know, nineteen thirties. Yeah. Vampire movie, you know, even though it's called Bella Lagos. Like, yeah, you know, now that I think about it, like choosing uh opening song that goes Bella Lugos is dead. Like this is not your Dracula movie from the 30s, yeah. There's but- no there's no
0: sh- sharp teeth and and capes and fangs and things. It's gonna be a different aesthetic of vampire movie.
2: Yeah. And it makes you feel like it's going to be really punk and rock, but the rest of the film can feel, I guess just um a very slow burn, mm-hmm. seductive, you know, um, art house. It's, uh, it's very interesting. Um, yes. Although to be quite honest, in terms of my aesthetic, the opening is not my, my thing. <laughs> <laughs> I tend to go for, I mean, you've seen Lingo Franc, I tend to go for, you know, Wong karwai ish um, yes. <laughs> lush, kind of shtick. But you know, I thought the opening was just the perfect 80s time capsule. Um, yeah. That mm-hmm. kind of, I feel like the 80s movie is a genre unto itself. Um, yeah. Yeah.
0: It's really interesting uh-huh. they 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 shot that opening at heaven Charing cross the like gay bar which was like massive <laughs> in this in this time so I thought that was really interesting a perspective of queerness that there's like th- that's all taking place within sort of London's hub of queer people which I thought was quite cool especially given what comes later in that Miriam is like this sort of I, I don't know to describe her as bisexual but certainly her sexuality is more fluid than just being with david bowie
2: so interesting you know because these are some things like yeah it it didn't really even occur or it wasn't that big of a deal to me seeing that
0: Catherine Deneuve's character was bisexual. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so watching it from our contemporary <laughs> lens,
2: you know, but mm. at that time, yeah. it was it a big
0: wow? Y- yeah. I mean, they had to closed sets and things to give Susan Sarandon and and Deneuve a sort of privacy. I mean, especially for those two actresses who yeah. are very much sort of in the vein of heterosexual narratives, so with Deneuve in sort of in terms of like the New Velvag and Jack films, and then and then with Sarandon, sort of American big. Budget film, so it's, it's it's this sort of like meeting of cultures as well in this film that you have like the British David Bowie and the French Deneuve and American Sarandon and they yeah. all sort of come together in this hodgepodge. I don't want to say like love triangle because it's it's bigger than that. There are like you know there's a whole history of people who have been a part of this sort of ongoing narrative.
2: Yeah, have there been a lot of weird vampire movies?
0: I think I think there was a particularly at this time moving out of like the 60s and 70s there was a sort of an almost fetishization of lesbian vampires because there was like um, Vampires Lesbos and there was Jean Roland's films in, in France of the sort of lesbian vampires. And yeah, so it's almost, I suppose if we're talking about like the gays in that scene and, and the, the sort of fetishization of it, actually, yeah, there is a precedent for lesbian vampires to be a thing <laughs> in films at this oh. time. But it's been sort of reclaimed since then. So things like uh, Kiss of the Dam Casafettes film and yeah, I feel I feel like there are, when it's coming from a female director, it tends to not fetishize that, but to sort of use vampirism as a form of empowerment to women. Whereas at this time, I think it, it more verges on the sort of uncomfortable male fetishization. Yeah. Um,
2: Most of those vampire lesbian vampire movies were directed by men.
0: Exactly. it's interesting because this is a film that as, as we said was sort of wasn't very successful when it came out it was critically derided but has sort of been reclaimed later on it's like listed as a cult film and particularly in sort of goth subculture this film's quite influential I wonder almost if when that happens and I think it's happened a lot since I mean there are films like Jennifer's Body for example which on release was like dismissed as being misogynistic and now it's seen as sort of It's been reclaimed by, with a feminist perspective. I wonder almost if it's possible that a film where the intention was fetishization and male gaze can then be reclaimed by women or by queer subcultures as something for them as almost part of their culture. What do you think? Yeah,
2: it's, you know, it's truly a fascinating, question in that do we assess an object of art an artistic creation outside of the circumstances it was created in yeah. and the intentions of its creator can we completely divorce that work from you know the the surrounding context and just attach meaning and significance to it you know from our own perspective you know interpretation as a consumer of it it's something that i've still been thinking about it. I can't, I think in this case, it can completely isolate The Hunger from the means and the system that created it and the design and intention of its director. um, Mm -hmm. Assuming that he had a good degree of creative control over the project. But to my understanding, when they shot The Hunger, the studio actually insisted on shooting that gory, grotesque scene where Catherine Deneuve gets attacked by the undead. Um.
0: Yeah, no, they changed the ending of the film to, that, to, to give the possibility for like sequels to be made by keeping Sarah alive at the end. It's certainly not what the film has been sort of building up to, because it's supposed to be that that Sarah kills herself rather than sort of live forever and uh, as an addict and, and and with her addiction. So it's interesting that they, they changed that. So yeah, I think you're right. I think we can't view this as a film, which is like entirely created at the bequest of Tony Scott. It's, it has been manipulated and, yeah. and sort of driven to some extent by, by the studio, which in this case is MGM.
2: Exactly. And, you know, I mean, th- the case would be, very different, would say, um, the Wachowski sisters, yeah. for instance, in light of what we now know about them, mm. you know, coming out as trans and interpreting the Matrix trilogy and the Matrix films as uh, trans narratives is not, you know, coming from out of nowhere.
0: It's not like trans people looking at the Matrix if the Matrix had been made by cis men. Yeah. And we're looking at it and going, oh, we can see that in there. But it had nothing to do with the Wachowski's intention. It's, it's different because obviously it, it's coming from them and they're encouraging that reinterpretation. Whereas if, if we're sort of reclaiming something like The Hunger as positive in its representation of, of lesbians, then... It's not coming from the same place. I suppose it would be like if, say, someone on the right reappropriated lingua franca to like their own political demands. I mean, God knows how that would happen. But if that happened, you know, you'd be able to sort of fight against that because it was completely not your own intention in in doing that. But I think you know,
2: um, at the heart of it, you know, as a viewer, we see what we want to see, and we kind of create narrative that we want based on what, what we believe to be true um, and I think yeah certain campaigns to reassess and reinterpret um, films that ha- might have been considered objectionable or derided when they first came out and um, revisiting them, different perspective or a different vantage point in a different generation. It's, it says a lot, it says definitely more about its reassessors than the work that's being reassessed.
0: Yeah, and I suppose what's also interesting in thinking about sort of how we in the present look at something in the past and, and how those things can meet. I mean, am I right in saying that Tropical Gothic is a period piece? Yes. Yes.
2: Sixteenth
0: century. Yeah. Exactly. So you're you're working on on sort of how we look at the past in that way, and I think what's really interesting in this film is how John's past as a sort of eighteenth century cellist comes into play in the present and how like the period aesthetic when they're playing Schubert's trio in E flat major and with Miriam and and how that sort of the whole aesthetic can change from shot to shot in the edit to show how like past and present has sort of come together.
2: Yeah it's actually, you know, since you mentioned Tropical Gothic, it's interesting because I feel like those really like you know few second flashbacks to these, you know, medieval or even really antiquated episodes reminds me of Dracula by Francis Ford Coppola starring Gary Oldman (laughs) and that kind of aesthetic. And yeah, it definitely, you know, emphasizes the Gothic quality of this film um, and its interest and preoccupation in these medieval past episodes, as well as, of course, decay and dying. Mm -hmm. Tropical Gothic, one thing that, you know, just going back briefly to our discussion on how you know a work of art is reassessed by a different you know generation. The thing about Tropical Gothic is that even though it's set in the sixteenth century and it's about the Spanish colonial regime in the Philippines, what I decided is that instead of this the language being the native Filipino language,
0: yeah.
2: Spanish. I'm going to be casting actors of Spanish heritage or Latin American heritage, but having the dialogue be in English, because ultimately it's an allegory about colonialism and imperialism. I don't want colonialism to seem remote or abstract or antiquated back in the 16th century. It continues to resonate and happens today, but in our day and age, it's not European countries that's primarily perpetuating and going into these imperialistic pursuits. It's it's America over developing countries and the third world. And by having the dialogue being English, even though the setting is ostensibly in a Spanish colony in the Middle Ages, I'm forcing or I'm inviting the audience to view this story from... A modern and contemporary lens, contemporary lens. So I think I'm kind of instructing or teaching the audience how to assess mm. my film in that case. And this was actually inspired by. you maybe you've seen Transit by Christian Petzold. Yeah,
0: yeah, I love that film.
2: You know, it's set in the whole, you know it's an adaptation of a Holocaust novel. Yeah, but we can't. It doesn't commit or it doesn't say that this is set in 1940s. It looks like it's a contemporary story set in the present day and that's what I want to do with Tropical Gothic as well that it's a parable and it's yeah. not stuck in in the Middle Ages.
0: Yeah it's interesting mentioning Petzold Salt because I, I think that's true of many of his films that there's this sort of enigmatic period setting of his films that you're not quite sure And and, and again I mean have you seen Undine his latest film? I haven't. Oh, it's very good. But it's like that sort of mythology interacting with the present day in a very different way to like how we've seen the sort of Undine myth shown in films before. I think it's I think it's fascinating how we can sort of use past settings and stories to say something about today um, and the interaction between those.
2: But it's interesting with The Hunger in that it, undeniably
0: 80s, but yeah.
2: still. Has in some sense, a timeless quality.
0: Yes, and I think that's what's so important is, and particularly in The Hunger, it's about the timelessness of, of those relationships and how, I suppose what the ending does is it gives some more, the changed ending, it gives an almost optimistic suggestion that, you can put a stop to the evils that have sort of existed throughout history, that, you know, there is a chance to change that. Whereas the original ending sort of, you know, Miriam would have kept on going and kept on sort of ruining people's lives in the ways that she does.
2: Now, you know, we're discussing it. I think I have a theory why this was not critically well-received. And I think Mm -hmm. it might be as striking and as the opening sequence was it doesn't really represent what the rest of the film would be and would feel like mm. and I think a lot of you know negative reviews or films that are ultimately not well received it's because they set up certain expectations that they either subvert um, or don't fulfill or meet and that's what critics and audiences don't like you know it's a very rock and roll punk kind of opening for a film that's otherwise I think, quite atmospheric and reserved and yeah. classical.
0: Yeah, I think that's a that's a really important point, that the music in the film is really all over the place. And that's, you know, it starts off with Bauhaus punk music, and then we're straight into Schubert, and then later on we get Bach and gorgeous scene when John's being laid into the coffin by Miriam and Allegri's Miserere is playing. And it's, it's just such a, it's, it's almost like the music starts very modern, and goes backwards in time, all the way back to sort of medieval choral music, and then back forward again to Dalib for the for the sex scene. And all the while you've got like this sort of synth score occasionally like permeating as well, which very much grounds it in like the 80s. I mean, when I hear that, I always think of Vangelis's Blade Runner score, which is like the year before this in in Tony Scott's brother Ridley's film. So um, I think the music's really interesting. It's sort of playing with those those themes. And as you say, it sets it up to be something that the rest of the film isn't it so different to what you see before that
2: also you know I mentioned that because that's also one of you know what I was thinking a lot while I was cutting lingua franca and then because part of me was like you know when you're submitting to festivals the 10 minutes for seven minutes are really important because it determines whether you know people are going to decide to continue watching the film at that point so it Mm. has to be interesting it has to grab your audience but and it also was like it could be you know like you know quick scenes, fast editing, but that's not my film. And um, mm. I wanted the opening sequence at least to immerse the the, the audience in the world of Lingua Franca right away. And that's why those montage scenes that were very Ackerman-esque. <laughs> yes, <laughs> well, so gorgeous. We shot them. <laughs> them a few months after principal photography, so we did a pickup two pickup days and Mm. we just shot those um, scenes on Coney Island and Brighton Beach actually because I thought that would you know bring the audience right into the world of Lingua Franca right away in Brighton Beach and yeah so that it doesn't feel like I'm deceiving or cheating the audience about what to expect film
0: yeah and i suppose also there's such certainly for someone who is cine literate and 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 you as a very cine literate director those citations say a lot to an audience like when it starts and it's sort of like news from home like the kind of letters and, and the voiceover and then the sort of Jean dillman like shots with the woman op- peeling the orange and, and 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 parts like that but also you do that with the music as well, when mm. Smoke Gets in Your Eyes is playing. I mean, that's that's a song which <laughs> has a long history in in, yeah. in in film use and conjures up things like Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant and um, Andrew Hayes 45 Years. I mean, I'm saying that as, as someone watching it. Was that your intention when you like made those choices?
2: Yeah. Um, you know, and to add to those two that you mentioned, there's also a three times by of course and um and yeah i i think i i fell in love with that song from catch up kent and three times but i when i saw that used in the trailer for 45 years like three four years ago maybe even longer i was just like blown away and yeah i've been wanting to kind of be part of that cinematic tradition of movies that use <laughs> smoke gets in your eyes yeah. but i wanted to use a version that wasn't you know uh, that was just instrumental
0: yeah rather than the platter's version i think it's interesting because i because i was i was thinking about that in terms of representations of female relationships in this period and i was trying to think of like other films where where that and Petra von camp was obviously one of them and it's it was yeah I I think when I was watching that that sex scene with the lacme and the music. And I was thinking of like, the use of that in Petra Kant and then was thinking about Lingua Franca. It's, in- it's interesting how like these things can sort of be conjured up when you're watching a film.
2: You know, watching The Hunger, are you seeing any conscious or deliberate like mm. nods and homages? That voice. Yeah. Do you think there is a reference to von Kent?
0: Not that I noticed. I don't think. I think. I think. What? What? In terms of citation, mm-hmm. I think that this film is doing that perhaps more in terms of its casting. So the casting of David Bowie is very significant in terms of the narrative of a musician who's seems ageless and sort of can adopt various different personas and the way that like he ages so quickly and the ma- the change of makeup because Bowie's a sort of chameleon like quite enigmatic individual and like Nicholas Rogue's man who fell to earth comes before this and you know the fact that he's sort of a vampire someone who's from a different period in centuries later and he's he sort of has that ability to very effectively play someone who's sort of not quite comfortable or not quite there's something off about him being in these surroundings by contrast to Deneuve being cast. When you put Deneuve in a film that's not a French film, it's sort of citing those earlier films that she did at the start of her of her career. And it's it's sort of like these two people almost from a slightly earlier era are now. Mm-hmm sort of presented as being like caught up in this very 80s world and it's like well what, what, how do they interact with this new setting when I say things like that I'm thinking in particular of the example I always use is Godard's Le Mipli, because the use of Fritz Lang in that film by contrast to Brigitte Bardot and like the sort of cinema changing hands from like the old masters to the sort of the sexual revolution of the 60s and by having Bardot as like a very modern sex icon and Lang as like this sort of symbol of old cinema. So we're, we're, I, think, I think it's just a really fascinating casting. How do we code to an audience that there's something slightly different about these two vampires without like, as I said before, like putting them in capes, giving them fangs and like <laughs> having very obvious sort of blood sucking scenes and, and making the aesthetic very historical Gothic rather than contemporary Gothic by casting Deneuve and Bowie in those parts? they feel out of joint with the, sort, with the New York setting that makes up the majority of this yeah. film.
2: Yeah. Some of the criticism against The Hunger was that it was all style, no substance. I mean, but do you feel ultimately that The Hunger was an emotional experience? Did it move you in any way?
0: Yeah, I think so. Because when I was reading the reviews, it was almost always talking about that opening sequence and the sex scene and it's like well there's an awful lot of film (laughs) that comes around those those scenes and I actually think the scene that sort of moved me the most was when that really distressing scene where John kills the child and then Alice,
2: Alice.
0: yeah their pupil as a sort of last desperate attempt to cling on to life and is then put into the coffin. So, I mean maybe it's because listening to Miserere will always make me sort of emotional. And and as you say it has this sort of like the the doves and and the linen and the sort of like strobe smoke effects and very 80s, but it, it's all it's all working to try to sort of play at your emotions and <laughs> I found that it did so for me. More about you or what do you, what did you think um, of I the film was, as a whole?
2: I thought it was a fascinating exercise in style, you know ultimately it's not my sensibility I did not yeah I I wasn't moved by it but not every movie has to do that and I'm sure you know it ultimately depends on on the viewer um and what kind of art you know connects with you or resonates with you for me you know I'm still a combination of like the Bergman's and (laughs) the Passbender and the Wong Kar Wai but for me you know, when it's all, of, a, all
0: All of which could move me. I mean, may, maybe I'm just a softie and I get moved by everything. I, I, I don't know.
2: I think just because, you know, it's very distinct 80s aesthetic makes it feel, just place up the artifice to me. Mm-hmm. And I'm not able to... It keeps me from really, you know, piercing through that artifice and... Right. Con- With the material on a profound level, whether you know it's a meditation, a mortality and dying and time, Um, yeah, I I just can't stop being reminded of the '80s commercial from Apple for some reason. I might revisit it. I've been wanting. I'm glad. I'm very glad I watched it uh, because it's been a blind spot for me for so long. And I'm gonna go down my list of vampire movies to watch as I'm getting inspiration for my own vampire. movie which is going to be a lot a lot slower (laughs) and a lot more art housey um than maybe the hunger that sounds amazing
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's interesting you say that about artifice and, and the 80s because a lot of my favorite films are the sort of high camp knowingly queer films that are made in britain in the 80s so especially derek jarman's films which he starts so making in, in the 1980s. And I think particularly in terms of thinking of something like Edward II or Wittgenstein, where everything is artificial. There's, there, there are no naturalistic elements, but they're sort of biographical films. And that's used to sort of play up the queerness of those films and, and, and the camp of those films. Also, Ken Russell's films in the eighties, his sort of like Listomania types things. And I, I I think that what's quite interesting is that this is a film largely shot in America and produced by MGM, but it ha- but it's it's by an an English director and and the male lead Bowie is is an English actor, so it it's weird in that it this is definitely. The most British of Tony Scott's films. It feels like a part of that that yeah. movement in the eighties where mm. even straight directors like Ken Russell were making films which were really appealing to queer audiences through yeah. that sort of campness and queerness.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm just now realizing that Ken Russell was not gay.
0: No, he's straight. <laughs> <laughs> but you, if you watched his if you watched his films, you would never know. <laughs>
2: Oh my God. Um, <laughs> when I was at the Criterion Closet, I got a copy of Women in Love, actually. Excellent. Wow. Okay. <laughs> learned something new every day. I learned today that Ken Russell was not gay.
0: <laughs>
2: Jarman was gay. <laughs> yes. Um, I you know, I wish that more of Derek Jarman's works were being um, you know, distributed here. I remember mm-hmm. when I was in high school in the Philippines, I was still in the Philippines and there was a Derek Jarman book in the in a bookstore it was he has a book called Blue right I'm sure
0: yeah well right. the film there's a film called Blue but it's right. it was probably a th- there I think there's been a book with all of the poetry that's used in that film that's been okay. published so it's probably that got it so
2: the, the film was an adaptation of the book or the book was like a tie-in to the movie
0: oh so the film is it's a blue screen Eve Klein blue and then various different collaborators who worked with Jarman and read bits of uh, extracts of poetry and things which were then played over the top of the screen because um he it was his last film which he made when once he'd gone blind from AIDS so the the blue was sort of to recreate the sense of blindness and what the sounds of, of poetry um if you haven't seen it it's it's one of my favorite films it's incredibly the Tilda, beautiful.
2: The, the Tilda Swinton. Yeah. Okay. Because they know that they were good friends and collaborators.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting you saying that they're not particularly accessible because my grandma absolutely loves Derek Charman and introduced me to his, his films, but she couldn't do that for quite a long time because they just weren't available. And then the BFI over here released a box set of his films on blu-ray a couple of years ago so uh, it's only really been recently that we've been able to sort of yeah. access them yeah
2: yeah that I just thought it was I remember the, the poems um but I just he struck me as really quite an original artist yeah that's it
0: yeah I think it would be hard I mean obviously you said that you prefer like slightly more subdued Art house filmmaking, but if, if I I have a feeling that if 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 something's going to convince you that it that it could be moving, German films are definitely
2: the ones to I to I watch. feel like if it's coming from a voice that is really unique and original, I will definitely, even though it, if if it seems artificial, I would still get into it. I think it's just with a hunger, it's the '80s aesthetic that feels generic and not. Tony Scott, you know, like right. in a way, it feels like a commercial, in a way. Um, but if it's artificial in a way that, that, say, a Roy Anderson film. Right, is, I can definitely get into that. An Aki Smaki, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. My film or a mm. Wes Anderson. If it feels like it's just coming from their own mind and sensibility,
0: yeah, I, and you and you don't and you don't think it is in the case
2: of The Hunger. No, because I can. That, I feel like again this is me watching it and discussing it in 2021 right a lot of works you know pretty much the 80s is done and this came out in 83 so maybe back then yeah it was bold or cutting edge or fresh um that I can't say because you know I'm watching it 40 Mm. years later Um,
0: yeah what do you make of like David Lynch's films from the 80s because like In terms of aesthetic, I think it's quite similar to things like Blue Velvet.
2: No, I think Blue Velvet is weird in its own idiosyncratic way.
0: Okay. (laughs) It doesn't feel as 80s as this does. does Yeah, Uh, okay. (laughs) Yeah, It's like 80s in a very Lynch way, not 80s. Right, okay, I see. Whereas this is 80s in an 80s way. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I see what you mean. Well, we're talking about this sort of thing. I'd be very interested to know, like, what your relationship with British cinema is more broadly, because, you know, you, when I when I asked you to, to choose film, you originally said My Beautiful Laundrette, which I did an episode on a couple of weeks ago.
2: You know, British cinema to me is, I think from the British directors I know I. Are- The ones that are typically considered canon, to be honest. I mean, there's uh, Mike Lee, for instance. There are um, Powell and Pressburger. My favorites. (laughs) 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 Joanna Hogg,
0: Lynn Ramsey. Have they had an influence on your filmmaking?
2: It's so weird because I feel like for the long, like especially during my formative years, I've associated british film with merchant ivory right yeah productions you know there was a stretch from the 80s to like the mid-90s like maurice Howard Zend, the remains of the day these are all merchant ivory right and merchant, yeah, 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 they are yeah and yeah and i just felt like they were not formally or stylistically exciting to me um, okay that's interesting and that they were shrouded but by this kind of propriety and gentility that I wanted to rebel against, you know, in my own art. And
0: um, Israel Merchant was Indian and James Ivory was American. Oh, okay. Wow. But but their films are so British.
2: They're so British, <laughs> British because their adaptations of British, you know, classic British.
0: Yeah. I mean, they did make films in India and they made films in America as well. So there are, that they do have Indian and American films as well, but they adapted... Some of the most quintessentially British novels ever written. It's interesting because they were gay, they were a couple, and they oh. they they made three adaptations of Ian e. Forster novels. So, as you said, Morris and um, Howard Zend. They also made um, Room with a View, and, and they they all have this like queerness to them that's in the source books, but it's sort of subdued, which yeah. they really bring out in their films.
2: Who do you think are the iconic? and most quintessential British auteurs. Also, I oh, just wanted to mention, oh. like, I know that Hitchcock is British, but we know him as, you know, fundamentally American, because that's, that's where, you yeah. know, it's in the Hollywood system that he made most of his yeah well, well-regarded works. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah, I mean, you mentioned Joanna Hogg, who I, I think of as sort of the quintessential author in Britain, who has come out of that school, of British, very independent filmmaking that I associate with Derek Jarman and Ken Russell in the eighties. That sort of, that style of filmmaking where you just get your group of friends, actors, like your little truth and your costume designer and everything, it's all the same people. You have a notebook. You pick a topic, you stick all the stuff in the- and pull inspiration, and then you make that scrapbook into a film. So it's not formally scripted or anything. It's mostly improvisation. It's all about the aesthetic of those films. And Joanna Hogg is one of very few directors who still make films in that way. Mike Lee is, to some extent, another one. Um, as you say, because a lot of his films aren't well. They're, they're sort of partly scripted in the way that, like Terrence Malick makes his films as well, where it's like there's no formal scripts. You'll just like give someone a piece of poetry that he wrote that morning, and then they'll that that's the scene that they shoot for that day. Film hours and hours of footage, and then you sort of put the film together by cutting it all up in the editing process. That that's a form of auteurism that I I associate specifically with with British directors where it's cinematic but it's very theatrical it's done in a sort of theater troupe style of filmmaking
2: Yes, uh peter greenaway british
0: yeah that's an interesting example as well because that's like peak art of this in terms of and 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 gothicism in his in his films and 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 again the sort of play of periods in something like cook thief his wife and her lover and draftsman's contract as well
2: to me like John Hagg is interesting because she feels, you know, like she's both very art house and very British. I feel like, you know, her films feel British, right?
0: Yes, very much so.
2: Very uh, British. And like, Lynn Ramsay does not necessarily feel.
0: The first, I think, the, I think her first two films, Ratcatcher and Than Colour, feel very Scottish. And then her later films, When You Talk About Kevin, you would never really hear, are very American. So it's, it's interesting the way that her career, and the same with Andrea Arnold, uh, Red Road or Wuthering Heights are very British, whereas American Honey, oh, and Fish Tank's very British, but American Honey is very American. So it's, 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 it's that typical thing of like the sort of British invasion where directors go from making very British films to going to Hollywood and then making something quite distinct from those earlier projects. You can probably relate to that to some extent because
2: you started off making films
0: in the Philippines and now you're making sort of quintessentially American films
2: but it's fascinating to me that you know I did not I wouldn't even call it a crossover because I Mm. feel like when I was really becoming a student of film you know I was watching world cinema and you know my sensibility wasn't really molded by the mainstream Filipino films that I were watching like I didn't really take them seriously because they are studio um studio output but yeah um I feel like my language, I feel is, as a filmmaker, is quite international, like Lingua Franca, even though it's in the US, I still feel like it's more of a European art house film in that sense, um, in terms of its grammar and just the rhythm and the pacing. Yeah.
0: I mean, I think that's why I found like the sort of references in those in those shots at the start and at the end and to News from Home so striking because Ackerman herself is a European filmmaker who goes to New York and that's the film that she makes there. And it's like this sort of conversation taking place between the imagery of America and mm-hmm. the words and the language of Belgium in, in her home. So yeah, it's I, I found that so beautiful. I mean, it's <laughs> I, I I I'm I'm trying to restrain myself because I don't want to just like say <laughs> how much I adore this film and how much it means to me, but I can't stress enough that it that it does. And I really hope that more people in the UK are gonna be able to see it. Is there plans for release yeah. over here?
2: Yeah, we are working on getting it to um, the UK hopefully in the next few months. Yeah. I'm just glad that, you know, it's, you know, been warmly received stateside and, you know, in other places in Europe as well. Yeah, uh, I'm very excited and I, I'm working hard to get the film yeah. shown in more territories. Yeah. And thank you for having me on to talk. Um,
0: yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate it and for giving so much time to, to really unpack the hunger and to talk about your films and British filmmaking more broadly. I mean, I think that's what I've, I really love about doing these podcasts is that you, I never, you know, we, we choose a film, but we never know what directions it's gonna branch out in. So thank you so
2: much. This has been so much fun, Lillian.
0: Yeah. If you've got an idea for an article or a podcast, you can contact me via Twitter. My handle is at Lil Croft with three hours in Lil, which is where I'll be posting about new writing and episodes. Do also get in touch if you fancy appearing as a guest and have a film you'd love to discuss with me. The Listen to Lillian podcast is available via the blog and all the usual channels including Spotify, Google and Apple Podcasts, so don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. All that remains for me to say is thank you for listening and toodle pip!